Welcome to Rush Hockey Talk, brought to you by Rush Hockey, trusted guidance, unrivaled success. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Katorji, and this is our podcast series. This is definitely the place to be if you want to learn how to pave your way to the world of youth hockey. So get ready, because you're going to hear some amazing interviews with premier personalities, coaches, scouts, players, celebrities. We got them all. Rush Hockey for over 25 years, experts in evaluation, over 10,000 alumni. It's unmatched. It's Rush Hockey Talk, and it's here. Welcome to another edition of Rush Hockey Talk. And today we have another authority in the world of women's college hockey. He's a good friend of ours. We've known Grant Kimball for probably pushing 20 years, Grant, I think. And presently, Grant is a Division Three head coach at Aurora University. He is also the AHCA governor for the coaches body in Division Three women's hockey. Grant, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for dating our relationship. <laughs> 20 years is men. a long time. <laughs> it actually is. Do you remember the first time we ever I do, met? Where were you coaching? I do. I was at uh, Wayne State University, and uh, your buddy Jim Fetter took me to what was then the Prospects event, um, and that's where we first met. Wow. That was a long time ago. Wayne State. I haven't heard those two words in so long. Disappointing that, that it that it uh, died. But what was your experience like there? It was awesome. Um, Jim had just gotten hired. He was the assistant uh, at Mercyhurst. So he took over. Program was kind of in the bottom of the basement of the CHA and culture a little bit in shambles. And I actually, I got hired really late in the in the year. It was just after September back in 2003. Um, so I came on late. He had already hired uh, a former player who just graduated from Mercyhurst, uh, Mayor McDougal Bari now, who's uh, the assistant coach at St. Lawrence. But we came in and, you know, coaching at a school in inner city Detroit is not easy to get dads to let their 17 and 18 year old daughters to go to. But right. we, we did a phenomenal job. By the time I left, uh, they were co-regular season CHA champs with Mercyhurst, played in the CHA championship game, had a top 10 ranking for the first time in program history. Uh, we had Melissa Bull, who was a top 10 Patty Cavs finalist. Uh, so we, we put the program in a great, great place. And I then moved on to the University of North Dakota, but uh, Jim and his staff continued the the good work. And up until it uh up until they decided to drop the program, I think in 2010, 2011, somewhere around there. So what were, other than the fact that in the Detroit area, that was obviously a tough selling point at the time, being a school in that geographical region, did you have other selling points that caused you grief? Because you obviously did a heck of a job. And I believe if my memory serves me right, at one point, um, your staff, Jim, uh, leading the way, were coaches of the year. Yeah, so the I left in the uh, spring after the the two thousand seven two thousand six two thousand seven season. 
And the following year, so this would have been 2008-9, Jim was National Coach of the Year. Um, So, you know, but uh, other challenges we had, um, you know, I think perception of our league was always one that we were fighting with. Um, We were a four-team conference at the time. We had Mercyhurst, ourselves, uh, Finley University at the time, um, and Niagara University as well. Uh, and we always seem to be fighting, well, you guys don't play in a competitive league. Um, so, you know, that, that was one. Um, but that, that actually just sort of made us work, I think, harder. Um, I, I, I love it when people say you can't do something. And uh, I, think, I think as a staff, we all had that. Jim certainly had it when he took over. You know, he obviously saw an opportunity and something in Wayne State uh, and the trajectory that the program could be on and we did everything in our power to prop the program up and and we certainly did it but you know perception of our league was one and um you know just without the program didn't have any prior success and i think when whenever you're recruiting from a competitive pool if you're trying to get the best you know people want to go to a place that is certainly on on the way to success or have, have had success and we we had to create that success in order to, uh, in order to get other highly talented players to to come in and follow it's amazing what good coaching and hard work does and it's funny there's a parallel to what you're saying we hear it every day here on our phones we get parents calling us daily asking us if they should be playing for this organization or that organization this team has no history this team was in the last place and our answers are always, it makes no difference where you play if you have a staff that's going to work hard and do their best to teach you. You'll be just fine. Do you agree with that? 100%. Um, especially, I think, on the minor hockey youth side of things. You know, if I'm a, if I'm a parent, uh, I'm, I'm concerned with who's going to be able to develop my daughter the best who can provide the best coaching and development opportunity, not what team is going to be the best, you know, on the college side, you know, being a recruiter, does it help to have players from a winning program? You know, sure that plays a part, but I think we're, we're looking for other, other elements to somebody's game. Um, So I'd always, you know, look for who's going to provide the, the best development opportunity for my, for my daughter to play. Good advice. Great advice. So let's get a little bit into your history. So we had Wayne state presently head coach, Aurora NCAA division three. Give us a little bit more background on the other places you've coached. Yeah. So I actually got into coaching girls and women while I was a senior in college. I had a buddy of mine who graduated a year ahead of me and was coaching with the Team Illinois Girls Hockey Association. This was back in 1995, so uh, pre-Olympic sport days. Wow. And uh, I was finishing up my degree, finishing up playing, and his assistant coach uh, got transferred for work, and he asked me to help him out. And this was was a U19 team with with TI. So I said, sure. You know, so one practice a week – uh, quickly became two and two practices a week became, Hey, let's go to Toronto for a tournament on the weekend. And I, it just kind of spiraled from there. So that was my first introduction to actually coaching girls and women. And, and I got the bug right away. 
Um, I came on his, I came on his team in January, by the end of the year, the association asked if I wanted to take my own team the following year. I said, yes, I did that for five years. Um, trying to piecemeal other jobs together to sort of feed my coaching addiction. Um, and then I got a lucky break to go back to my alma mater at Lake Forest College uh, to coach and be an assistant with uh, a newly hired coach there. Spent two years at Lake Forest, and then I went on to Wayne State University in 2003. Spent four years there, and then I moved on to the University of North Dakota up in Grand Forks uh, for the 2007-08 season. Again, that was a situation where we had a new coach and Brian Adalski taking over the program. And uh, again, a program that hadn't done well on the, you know, competitive side, sort of, you know, basement dweller of the WCHA. Um, and again, a situation where we had to work our tails off to change perception, to recruit better players and to put that program on a trajectory towards success. Um, and then, uh, you know, a few years later, made the move to the University of Vermont in 2009 uh, to get me back a little closer to the East Coast and family. Um, spent seven years at, at UVM, um, had a great experience there. Uh, UVM is a, a great school. It's a great area. Uh, you know, it's where I, I met my wife. So uh, things, things went pretty well. And then the opportunity to start a program from scratch came up at Aurora University, uh, just west of Chicago, Illinois. And that's where I've been for the past three years. Wow, that's an incredible uh, coaching carousel there. You, <laughs> it's funny how many stops a coach can make in his or her years of coaching. And I, if anyone listening out there meets Grant, you'll know his his knowledge is very high when it comes to coaching. And of course, you can tell with experience. So it's pretty awesome. So let's get into a few other things, Grant. You are the AHCA. Governor for Division Three Hockey. Explain to listeners that position and what you do. Sure. Uh, so the AHCA is the American Hockey Coaches Association, which is sort of the the arm coaches association for the NCAA Division One and Three men's and women's side. Um, I sit on their board of governors as a Division Three women's representative. Um, so I represent sort of the Division Three women's coaching body. Uh, we have an annual convention down in Naples, Florida, uh, generally towards the end of, of April. And my function is to sort of act as a liaison between our Division Three body of coaches uh, to the association. Um, and at our convention, I will run uh, our Division Three women's coaches meetings so if you can envision, you know, all the division one and three men's and women's, you know, hockey coaches, head and assistants uh, down there, um, you know, divisionally, the, you know, division one women have a separate meeting, division three women have a separate meeting. And that's, a, you know, I do it for the, for the division three side. So we talk about national issues that affect uh, our teams and our sport. Um, there were some changes this year to the division one recruiting rules that just went into effect May 1st. And there was some discussion as to, you know, will that impact division three? If so, uh, in what way and how quickly? Um, so that's, that's a bulk of my role. Uh, and then from those meetings in Florida, 
I will, uh, which I'm in the middle of doing right now, is sort of recapping those meetings, putting some notes together, and then I'll uh, get that information to the rest of our body that wasn't able to make it to, to our convention in Florida. But really, I'm, I'm a conduit for information. Um, in addition to being a Division Three representative, I also help out with the larger Board of Governors, which, you know, there's uh, one for, you know, there's a few for Division One. There are, you know, a whole host for Division One and Division Three men. So we'll meet as an executive committee and as a board and talk about the convention itself and other other factors influencing and affecting our game. Um, but that's really my my role in uh, in that position. Without a doubt, you you are an authority, and our our goal here is to make sure that parents get a chance to hear authorities without a doubt, so that everyone is going down a path that helps them versus hinder them. And you definitely are a mountain of information that's pretty awesome. So speaking of that convention, so if we are to date this podcast, we're you know in the month of May 2019. So the coaches convention just was completed a couple of weeks ago. Can you give us, let's start with division three, a quick recap of what came out of those meetings that is important to Division Three hockey coaches. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, the uh, you know one of the the questions we asked our body was you know what what impact if any do we feel that the new recruiting rules that the Division One coaches uh, and programs have to contend with now how's that going to impact our game? Um, and for those that don't know, there were some rules uh, that the NCAA enacted on and put into legislation and that became effective May 1st, uh, all revolving around when college coaches and recruits and their families can actually uh, come in contact with one another to try to really slow down this early recruiting process that's happening. So they changed the date of when coaches can first reach out and the date of when you know recruits can meet with a coach face-to-face and when they can have visits and when emails can get sent, all that stuff. Um, so that was one item we talked about. And truth be told, it, it's probably going to be a couple of years before we find out what, if any, impact is, is going to be had. Um, you know, if you look ahead to future recruiting classes, you know, 2020, 21, 22, across the board at Division One, th- those, those classes have been locked up for quite a while. So I don't think, and what came from our body was, we really don't feel that the new rules are going to impact us much uh, moving forward. Um, you know, our, our recruiting calendar, our sort of process is certainly later than what the division one schools are used to. Um, most of the commitments for us happen somewhere between somebody's second half of their grade 11 year and on into the fall of their senior year. And, uh, you know, even some schools are are still finishing up their recruiting classes for the fall. So the process is a lot later for us, but I think the work that, some of the division one schools have done for future years might, like I said, it's going to be a little bit of time before we really figure out if any of those rules impact us greatly. So, so that was on the recruiting side. Um, This past year, our national tournament increased to 10 teams for the first time. Wow. And what we had were uh, two uh, play-in games as they're called uh, on the, the Wednesday before the, the first sort of quarterfinal games 
took place. So the tournament used to be at eight teams. It expanded to nine last year, uh, expanded to 10 this year. Um, so we wanted to get some feedback from those teams that participated in playing games. And uh, I think our body was just really happy that our national tournament got expanded and that more teams and more athletes were able to ha- experience what it's like going to a national tournament. Um, our division has received a lot of growth over the years. Um, you know, if we look at kind of the last three to four years, there's probably been, I think, five to six programs, new programs that have come into the fold uh, at Division Three. We've got another one or two along the way in the next couple of years. So um, based on the, the NCAA rules that dictate how large your tournament can be, it's based on a percentage of your overall participating body. Um, and we're, we're at the point where we've been able to expand and that will continue as long as new teams continue to emerge. Um, and I know we've got one program in, uh, Pennsylvania, I believe Alvernia university is going to be starting up a program next year. So, uh, the, the thought was that it was, it was great to see 10 teams. It went well. Um, another aspect of the tournament that got brought up in our meetings was, um, you know, currently I think women's hockey at the division three level anyway, we're the only sport in the NCAA that has what's called a third place game. So when you get down to your final four in the national tournament, the two semifinal losers get to play an extra game uh, during that weekend. And uh, as a coaching body, we've always kind of gone back and forth with, you know, the merits of having that game. And, you know, the argument is, well, for the seniors and the athletes, you know, it's a chance for them to play their last competitive game of hockey after a tough loss and, uh, you know, to sort of go out on a, on a good note and then have a final game. Um, and on the flip side is that's a really hard game to get up for. Uh, you just lost an opportunity to go to the national championship and now you got to play another game. You know, you, you might be really distraught from it. You might just, you know, th- there's a whole myriad of emotions that, that come with that game. And, there's been some talk of eliminating it. There's been some talk of keeping it um, and, uh, you know, reasons both for and against. So I, I think our body is sort of in a position where we need to gather some data uh, and, you know, sort of really get a sense of how, does, how do our coaches feel about that game and, do, you know, does it make sense? There's some financial considerations, considerations I'm sure that the NCAA is looking at about having that game and, you know, what's the impact if we don't on a positive or negative side. But, um, you know, that was, that was another sort of, you know, element to the national tournament. Um, for the first time in division three, we, and I believe the division three men as well, we used what's known as the pairwise ranking system to determine our tournament field. Um, and it's been in use on the men's side for a long time and, and at the division one women's level, but not at division three. And it, we, so the NCAA instituted it as a pilot program. It went, you know, very well and so much so that there are other sports under the NCAA that are looking to utilize the same pairwise system uh, to help determine their tournament fields. Um, but for the first time that happened, and there was a little bit of discussion, not much, you know, there was only 10 teams out of, you know, 70 or so that were affected by it. Um, other than that, uh, 
you know, we had a bit of talk about concussions uh, and how the game is being called. Um, the, the way that rules, you know, there's a, a two-year rule cycle at the NCAA hockey level. So every two years, the rule book changes. It's a chance for new rules to come into the book and be enacted in our game. Um, so, you know, we discussed a little bit about what rules might people want to see or what emphases, 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 um, might, <laughs> might want to be you got me on that one. <laughs> yeah. It was not an English major. Um, <laughs> you know, what rules do, do we have that might need a little, you know, cleaning up to do, um, so really, you know, those, those items I just mentioned was really a, about it. Um, I really, I really like the, uh, the 10 team expansion in particular, when you have, I believe close to 60 division three programs, is that number right? We're a little over that. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll be at 66, I think, or 67 this coming year. Um, you know, we had some division three teams or we had some, Schools like a St. Anselm's or a Post University or Franklin Pierce that were Division II schools athletically uh, from a you know their department purposes of classification, but competed at a Division III NCAA ice hockey level. There's now been the creation of a Division II conference, so those schools got removed. So. While we've been adding teams, the, the total number of Division three teams decreased due to those schools moving on sure. to that other conference. But we're we're approaching seventy. Wow, uh, legitimate bona fide Division three institutions, which is which is great. I don't know what the number would be, but if we looked, you know, over the past 10, 12 years, uh, we have, you know, we've had to have added a number of programs uh, in order to increase our tournament uh, field. Yeah, I think it's a great idea to increase that tournament field to 10 teams. I, I, I can't tell you how, how often I will talk to a player who's considering Division One, Division Three. Maybe they're more towards a Division Three um, uh, route, and they, they sort of lose sight of the fact that it doesn't matter if it's Division One or Division Three. It's hockey, and it's a chance to win a championship. Yeah. And I like that this 10-team field gives them uh, a better opportunity. What about this? Let's move on to Division One. So you're obviously very experienced in Division One hockey, and of course, being uh, a governor in the AHCA, you're going to know what's going on. Give us a little recap on the Division One changes. I know that it's been chaos over the past two or three years for parents in youth hockey, with without a doubt, not understanding why things are younger. Now it's why are things trying to revert to go back to being older? Can you sort of give us the quick recap and then we can sort of talk about a few other issues? Yeah, sure. So a a bulk of the changes on the D1 side are wrapped around these new recruiting rules that, as I said, came into effect on May 1st. Um, And the reason they came into effect was to really try to stop and slow down this early recruiting process, you know, it's been said that, you know, recruits as young as grade seven and eight are making verbal commitments to division one hockey programs, which is just crazy. And, um, and I've had those phone calls, believe it or not, I'm, from I'm sure. parents of that age. I'm sure. Incredible. Um, so, 
what, what's happened over the past couple of years is other other women's sports, lacrosse and softball in particular, uh, took it that their their coaches associations took it upon themselves to sort of put on the brakes and say, hey, we we've got a problem. Um, we're we're committing all these kids at an early age. They might not be in a position to make such a mature decision. We've got to change some things. So a few years ago, lacrosse and softball decided to make changes to their recruiting calendars and what their rules were. And uh, I can honestly say, having been a part of the AHCA, uh, there is a women's executive committee that was created, which I also sit on. Um, and it's been very interesting being a part of that group and watching what the process has been like to get our or the Division One kind of rule changes uh, done. So we've had the benefit of looking at lacrosse and softball and what the impacts of those rule changes have been. So um, as I said, they came into effect May, May 1. Um, so now the way rules are is coaches – are not allowed to have any kind of contact whatsoever. No phone, no text, no email, uh, no phone calls, no smoke signals, no firecrackers, whatever the case may be. Um, nothing until after uh, an individual's sophomore year uh, and kind of after the, the date of June 15th. Um, now, let me let me stop you for a second. Individuals. So, a lot of times parents will call, especially in the off season, and they'll say, you know, I've been asked to do A, B, or C, and there's a college element involved, and we're only in grade seven. Now, the new rules state an individual. What did the rules state prior to yeah, that? Yeah, so prior to that, um, and, uh, I've been out of the Division One game for a little bit, so my Recollection might be a bit foggy, but yeah, just yeah, sort of a so, general idea. Uh, the term "prospective student athlete" was a, a definable uh, term that got used, and that was anybody that was in grade nine and had had a recruiting conversation or email or you know some sort of communication with a with a with a, with a coach. They were a recruitable prospective student athlete um, because you know, the basketballs and the footballs of the world are talking with seventh and sixth and, you know, God knows how young the NCAA decided to put in a new definition and a new term of the word individual. Um, so they've now incorporated this new term individual, which is any individual, any person, I believe, you know, to, to play that sport. Um, and what they're now sort of Paying attention to with the rules is they're attaching a grade to a certain rule and a date to a certain rule Excellent. as to when communication can happen, not just, you know, a recruitable student athlete, which by definition under the old NCAA bylaws meant, you know, somebody in grade nine and above. Right. Um, so they're now sort of taking all of the ages and just calling them individuals. I, I, I tell you that uh, that is fantastic because I can't tell you how often – I will get calls from U10s, U12s, Adams, Peewees, or literally Adams, literally U10, and uh, the the Canadian equivalent, of course, is Adam, who will say that they must do something because of the collegiate process. And I just sit there and stare into the the phone and 
sort of wonder why, why do they think that's the case? But I think that that is key to helping parents who are so young not worry about this. I mean, it's just incredibly irrelevant at that age. Yeah. Well, now what can't happen is you can't have a player who's in grade eight, grade seven, grade nine, or in the midst of their grade 10 year, they can't just pick up the phone and call college coaches like they used to. Right. Uh, Now they can, they could, you know, place a phone call and let's say they get connected to a college coach. That college coach has to tell them what the rule is and then, you know, kind of scurry off the phone. Um, You know, before it used to be, the player or the parent could pick up the phone and call the college coach at their expense and a recruiting conversation could take place. Uh, that is what is getting wiped away um, with, with these new rules. So really the way that it breaks down is players and parents will not have any recruiting conversations with college coaches until June 15th after the, the grade 10 year. Um, and again, that's really, it really is excellent. Yeah. Considering that I will hear parents talk about a U10 being quote drafted and U10 being scouted. It's just insanity that, that needs to change. And so thankfully they've altered that language. Yeah. And there's some, you know, there's some, there've been some other rules wrapped around, you know, when official visits or unofficial visits can happen. Um, when verbal offers can be made. Um, so the, you know, there's been a lot of work that has gone into what the division one coaching body wants. Um, and there's not, I guess I'll preface by saying there, there wasn't anything that got put into place just specific to women's hockey. Uh, these rules that were put into place are for all sports other than men's hockey women's basketball, men's basketball, and football. Um, So this is going to affect baseball, you know, men's sports, women's sports. So these changes are coming in, you know, at the direction of the NCAA and, uh, you know, other sports are affected to follow the same rules just like women's hockey is. All right. So before – and I apologize for for interrupting you as you were explaining. Give us one more time just – a really quick recap of the 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 most important bullet points when it comes to Division One changes. I think it has to do with the the date of when contact can first get made. Um, no longer can coaches reach out to to players and you know ask for a conversation. That can't happen until June fifteenth after the the grade ten year, um, which sort of the other hot button topic that got wrapped around in all of this uh, is regarding hockey camps and clinics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you've got all these camps and clinics that are being done by each school. And what's been happening is that camp or clinic now has been the first opportunity that a coach has uh, the ability to actually speak and talk to uh, a, a player. Um, you know, it's, it's not the phone call anymore. It's not the, the, the text message. It's not getting the player to call the coach. It's now the camp interaction. And, 
that there was a lot of discussion. I didn't sit in on those meetings, but from what I heard, um, there are varying viewpoints as to how important those camps and clinics are, but um, it's, it was this, we got the impression from the NCAA that the same thing was happening with softball and lacrosse. Um, so there will probably be some legislation coming down the pike in the next year or two to help define what is allowable with individual schools hosting a camp or a clinic and what's allowable during that time. So that was, so those, those two items, the, the contact date of phone calls and camps and clinics and what's allowable, what's not allowable is uh, the, the two, the two biggest things that came about from meetings in Naples. Well, it sounds to me as though if all this stuff is coming into play quickly, I think it'll make a very positive impact on the youth hockey environment. Of course, I don't know anything about the other sports, especially for parents who just literally are being pulled and pushed and poked in so many different directions. Hopefully this gives them a little bit more guidance. And Grant, I hope we can have you on again so we can talk more. I'm sure as things start to evolve, there'll be more questions with these new rules and other things, scouting player evaluation, et cetera, that you could talk about. Hopefully we can have you on again. That would be fantastic. Loved it. Thanks a lot for having me on. I really appreciate it. I hope I run into you soon and keep us. Oh, uh, one thing, Grant, I want to ask you, are you allowed to give out an email address if anyone who is a prospective division three athlete would like to communicate with you? Uh, sure. Absolutely. Anybody who might be interested can email me at G Kimball. Uh, that's my last name, K-I-M-B-A-L-L, and then it's at aurora.edu. Fantastic. Grant, thanks again. Hope to see you soon. Sounds good, Kelly. Thanks a lot. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Rush Hockey Talk, the place to be to get informed about youth hockey. Rush Hockey Talk, trusted guidance, unrivaled success. Unrivaled success.